Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Leading in healthcare is incredibly challenging. So if you are looking to learn firsthand from nurses, physicians, administrators, and other healthcare professionals in leadership and management roles, this is the podcast for you. Hosted by Leah Wuchik, leadership development expert, executive coach, healthcare professional, and president and co-founder of Tall Trees Leadership. We talk with today's successful healthcare leaders on how they get to where they are, lessons learned along the way, and what it takes to thrive as a successful leader in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Wuchik. Todd Buchanan has worked in a senior management role with a regional addictions and mental health organization since July 2011. The organization has centers, community, outpatient and virtual supports for individuals living with addiction and or mental health barriers. He is currently the business and operations manager for Peer Support Southeast Ontario. In addition, he has spent the better part of over four years as a professor, specializing in the mental health continuum at Loyalist College. He has delivered speaking engagements around stigma and mental health across Ontario. He openly shares the barriers that he has lived with surrounding addictions and mental health during his life. Todd contributed to the World Health Organization book titled Guidance on Community Mental Health Services. Following the release, he received an invitation from the WHO and the French government to present in Paris, France, at the Global Mental Health Summit, Mind Our Rights Now. Todd has completed Essential Impact Accelerator Mastery Coaching and has collaborated on coaching demonstrations for a number of social service and mental health agencies. He is an advanced level wellness recovery action planning facilitator and a trauma-informed practices trainer. Todd enjoys spending time with a goat, Mr. Goat, and two alpacas, Carl and Theo, and collecting eggs from his chickens. These endeavors support Todd's wellness, as does gardening, sports, nature, and writing. Hi, Todd. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here on Central Line Leadership and Healthcare. I am really looking forward to uh, today's conversation. I know we've been um, trying to connect for a while, so I'm so grateful that you were able to take time out of your day today. As we begin, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself and the work you do, but also, you know, your story and how you ended up doing this type of work. Well, for sure. And I, I absolutely want to thank you for the opportunity. It has been a, a bit of a back and forth and being in different provinces in Canada can offer some, you know, challenges with time and all those things. But Always. <laughs> I'm happy to share, like, you know, first and foremost, um, what I do and then I'll give some background on to how I got to where I got to. Um, I think everyone has an interesting story of where they where they end up and in different avenues. So currently I am the business and operations manager for an organization called Peer Support Southeast Ontario. 
which works with individuals who have barriers around addictions and mental health. In addition to that, I'm also a professor at Loyalist College, where I teach specifically in the social service worker program. And my specialty is around addictions and mental health there as well. How I got here, um, you know, when, so first identify as someone with lived experience around addictions and mental health barriers myself. Um, so I spent the majority of my 20s in a place that was not great um, with addiction and mental health concerns for myself personally. And there was a point when I just needed to make the make changes in my life. And I made those changes and I ended up going back to, to school. So I'd been to university and then I went back to college. And that really was the trajectory for my for my career change. Um, and I ended up you know, doing some some different things at different places. At that time of of the job market, it was a lot of contract work. So I I hadn't talked openly about, you know, my barriers around mental health and addiction prior to working here at Peer Supports mm-hmm. Ontario and at Loyalist College. So I took a contract position at what is now known as Peer Support Southeast Ontario Edelman maternity leave and the first time i ever told anybody about my mental health barriers was the ceo of the organization and his response to that and his understanding around that really changed everything in terms of you know i felt so free to be able to say to hear his response of what do you need right now what can i do for you right now um and I realized that I didn't want to be anywhere else. So mm, I've wow. been with Peer Support Southeast Ontario now for what will be um, 11 years on July 11th. And I've been at Loyalist for about four years now teaching. So well, that's kind of where I, where I, my origin story, I guess you'd call it. But I started, you know, as uh, support, uh, as a coordinator and I just kept building and building and building into senior leadership. And, and that's what I do now. I appreciate you sharing a little bit about your lived experience and how your path has brought you to peer supports, uh, Southeast Ontario. What I'm curious about is what exactly, for those who maybe don't know what peer support is, what exactly does it entail? That is a wonderful question. because in my daily job, I have to explain that um, to some people because they don't, you know, there's different things that happen, you know, peer, you know, peer support in high school or, you know, peer mentor or peer whatever. And the word is, is an interesting word. So we provide, our direct workers provide, and even through management, peer support with the idea that peer support is when you have lived experience with something. It doesn't have to be mental health. It doesn't have to be addictions. You can have peer support for people with diabetes or with cancer or whatever whatever you, you can share an experience with. So we have paid staff who we hire specifically around addictions and mental health barriers that work with individuals to help them I guess the best word is 
through recovery. And recovery is another word we can talk about if you want in terms of what that means for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is the idea of person-centered um, approach, relational approaches. So you can, it's not about uh, telling people what to do. It's not about um, giving advice. It's easier to explain what peer support isn't for me. Um, it's not about giving advice. It's not counseling. It's not clinical. It isn't, you need to do this. You shouldn't do that. Um, you have to do this or else. There are, there are no, there, there's no language like that when it comes to peer support. What, in the way we practice it, it is about doing with people, not doing for people, right? A lot of times people want quick solutions, I find. And that, and when it comes to leadership, that's the last thing I want to be doing is, is answering questions and fixing things for people because it doesn't empower people and it doesn't hold people capable. And when we do peer support, that's what we're doing. We're, we're telling people you're capable. We're holding them capable and we're giving them tools and we're giving them examples of things that may have worked for ourselves that they might want to consider. They don't consider it that's okay too because recovery is an individual journey right and that's and that's what it's about but in terms of programs so just quickly we have seven peer support centers across southeast ontario in southeast ontario people might want to get a map out and see what that looks like it's a huge <laughs> area it's like over a hundred thousand square kilometers the region that we have services in wow and so Support centers are kind of like a place for people to go. And peer support just doesn't happen between staff and peer. It can happen between peer and peer, too. It's just a different type of relationship. Um, so we have seven centers spread out across that area. In our centers, we look at the idea of having things that people need that makes their lives a little easier. So we have lunch. Um, we have laundry washer dryer, we have TV, Netflix, we have groups and activities, provide social um, activities for people to be involved in, whether it's a, <clears throat> a recovery-based group or a fun activity like bingo. Uh, so it's, a, you know, it's kind of a, I like to call it, it's just a place to go and be who you are. We don't ask you for anything. We don't say like, tell us your name. And yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful part of an idea of being in a system but not feeling like you're in a system. My experiences have been that people who have had negative experience with, quote, the system, sometimes don't want to re-engage in that system. Mm-hmm. And we offer a place where you don't feel like, and we're not tricking people, like you don't have to tell us anything. You don't have to say anything. You can just sit and have a cup of coffee. And that's okay if that is what you want to do. So those centers exist. And then we have community peer support, which is more one-to-one. It is one-to-one in the community with people that a support center might not be for them. They may not have access to maybe barriers and transportation, a whole host of reasons. And we provide that service. We also, we're, so the transitional discharge model is a model that we, it was started um, by Dr. Cheryl Fortuck out of Western Ontario. And she did the research behind that. And what we do with that is people who are transitioning, being discharged from inpatient mental health units, have an opportunity to be matched with someone, a peer support worker in the community 
that will hopefully sustain their ability to not be rehospitalized. And we did do some work with the World Health Organization around that. Um, we were in a, a document by the World Health Organization that was published at Best Practice in Community Mental Health Services, which I'm very proud of. And following that, subsequently, I presented at the Paris Global Summit for Mental Health Rights, which was during COVID. And I'm disappointed I didn't get to, get to go to Paris, but I was there. That's fair. Through, through Zoom or whatever platform we use. I don't think it was Zoom. It was, it was a French platform, but it was an amazing experience nonetheless. And um, I wish I could have been there, but obviously yeah. that didn't work out. So yeah, those are the services. We also have virtual peer support, which is new. It's something that I created or had, I didn't create it. I had the IT company that we work with, um, Server Cloud Canada. They, they put it together for us really quickly and they really helped during COVID. And when I had it built, I had it built with the idea of long-term availability. I think sometimes people get excited about putting something out for a solution right away. But I also looked at like, what is the long-term benefit of having this platform? And there are long-term benefits for expansion. If people want to get peer support who aren't in our region, uh, we can offer that as well. So really rounded out uh, selection of services. And I'm quite proud of that. Uh, that's amazing. And thank you for sharing all of that. I mean, two things stood out to me as you were speaking. Um, one was accessibility. So accessibility of your services and and resources. And the other piece was sustainability. Um, I mean, you mentioned a couple of times around uh, sustainability and how important that is to you and the organization, but also the people you serve. Earlier, you mentioned recovery and you said we could talk about that. So I'm curious when you say recovery, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it means one thing to me yeah. and it means one thing to someone else. So for me, my recovery was about I can't use anymore, right? I, I I realize that and I do presentations on stigma as well. So I'm working on a new stigma campaign. Um, get the monkey off your back, talk about mental health. And I realized that I needed to just stop using it. I wasn't someone who could use when they felt like it and not use. I was pretty understanding of where I was at. Mm -hmm. And the reasons why I used was based in my my mental health barriers. So uh, for me, recovery really was about uh, not using. And for some people, they may take that approach. I'm not saying, and again, I would never say to somebody that you have to never use to be in recovery. I don't right. believe that. Right. I don't believe in the abstinence model per se. I know that it works for some people. I didn't take it upon myself that, oh, I, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about recovery in the model or any of those things when I quit, right? It was just a matter of I need to do this or I won't be here in a year or so. You know, I didn't know when, but like it was inevitable. So I had to. I just felt like it was time to to make that change. Recovery for some people could mean when it comes to addiction that they only use on the weekend or once a week or whatever that looks like. <clears throat> people in mental health recovery, they may you know, not want to have a therapeutic relationship. And that's okay. Um, people 
may define their recovery as getting out of bed in the morning, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I wouldn't define it for other people, but I would define it as it's unique to every person. Some mm-hmm. people may have the same idea of recovery. Hey, that's okay. But we don't put expectations on recovery because that's an individual choice. We do have kind of a, we have a code of conduct that says you can't, you know, be under the influence of substances because that infringes on the rights of other people's recovery. Mm-hmm. And you have, it's a balance. And we look at, you know, we weigh the consequences of if someone came under the influence of alcohol, for example, and we had five people in the center who were trying not to use alcohol, uh, that's not okay. So it's a, every, every rights-based thing is challenging. And I think we do a pretty good job of balancing those things out based on the recovery principle. I would imagine it's very challenging, as you said. It's a bit of a balance. And I'm wondering how your lived experience informs your um, approach and actions as a leader. Yeah, my my lived experience in terms of leadership is is really important to me. And I think it's really important to people that hear this story because like I mentioned, I do I do a stigma presentation and it was about stigma awareness, and then I changed and made the tra- I'm making the transformation into um, a different presentation because I realized a few things about the presentation that needed to change. But I think for me, if I go back to that moment where I shared that I shared with the CEO at the time, and it just changed our relationship in a very positive and unique way that we talked, we had conversations about it after, and he, he shared some stuff about his life with me. And I think that if you allow that, those types of conversations to happen in the workplace and through leadership, the people are more, are able to express themselves better. And when you express yourself better, you're, you're, what you're really doing is creating a greater dialogue for communication. And to me, communication is, is very important in the work I do. And from a leadership perspective, you're seen and held to a regard sometimes that may be unrealistic. And to show some vulnerability, I think is a good thing when it comes to leadership, that, you're, that you don't have all the answers and your life isn't perfect or has you've had, had struggles. When I do my presentation, the stigma presentation, I'm, Part of that telling my story, I do it for my loyalist students and I do it in third person. In some other places, I do it in third person too as well, especially clinical hospitals. You know, I've done my presentation at Queen's University, uh, four or five hospitals, like pretty much everywhere you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But with my loyalist students, I do it too in the mental health course. I do it from third person because I want their reaction to be that of, at the end, I tell them it's me and their reaction is just really different because they see me as something before the presentation and they see me as a human after the presentation, Ooh, right? As a real person, right? Because yeah. you get put on like this, whether you like it or not, this other level, right? And it's not about other levels. It's about being being human and being on the same level as other people. Once you take... And that's the other challenge with, with like we pay staff and you, it changes the power dynamic, whether you like it or not. 
And obviously, as a professor, that exists, whether I like it or not. But I try and make it the gap a little, um, shorten the gap or close the gap a little bit, because it doesn't, I can still lead and still be relatable, right? And that's really Mm -hmm. important to me. Mm -hmm. I think that's really fascinating, the idea of leading um, and being vulnerable at the same time. And I think, you know, that's something that many people maybe struggle with is that perception that if they're going to be a leader, they need to maintain a certain facade or a certain persona. What would you say is important for leaders to think about as they're maybe trying to be more vulnerable with their staff and their patients or clients or whoever it is that they serve? For me, I think, so I look at that a couple of different ways. I think defining leadership is really important to me. Uh, I don't see leadership as I'm in charge and I'm the person you have to come to for all the things you need to do, because that doesn't really hold people capable Mm -hmm. of what they're able to do. I want people to bring things to me and have solutions to potential problems that they already like if they have something, I want them to bring something. Don't bring me a problem unless you have a potential solution. If you don't have a solution, let's talk about it in a way where I coach you to a point where you come up with, with the answer yourself. Mm-hmm. Because I think in doing that, A, it shows that the person's capable and it makes them feel better about like their role and, and empowers them. But I also think that if you're seen as if you think you need to be seen as nothing phases you and you have that facade that people may think you don't care. And that's key is that because then people start to question your agenda. Right. It is like, is he in this just for himself? Does he only care about himself? Does he only make decisions based on what he can get out of it? And I think that's really dangerous. Well, I know it's dangerous. I don't think it's dangerous. It is dangerous because that's how you start to lose people around you. And by lose people around you, I mean, like, they don't trust you. They, they question, like, your motives. Why are you in it? Um, and if you can't be relatable and you can't be human and show emotion and understanding and value, it is value is the biggest, for me, is the biggest thing that you need to express to people that they're valued, that what they do matters, and that you appreciate it. And honoring that, I mean, saying good job to somebody isn't really, it's not really valuing them. Mm-hmm. You need to take time to acknowledge the hard work and effort people put into the, to what makes everything work. And I think if you have a facade of, you know, I, I can't be vulnerable, I have to be strong, then maybe you're not a leader. Mm-hmm. Like if you're having to pretend, then maybe you're not a leader. Yeah, you know, I think it's a really important point. And one of the things that comes up for me, um, as you say that, is what are some of the questions people need to ask themselves around this? Yeah, one of the things that that I always I always look back at, and I've had so many lessons in life, right? That didn't come from work they came from <laughs> other places and in and, and one of the things that i always 
think is listen to the stories you tell yourself. Like, and I, when I say that, it's like, what are you telling yourself internally when you get home or when you come to work? And if you're telling yourself a story, then you may have a leadership problem. Like if you're telling yourself, I need to be this way today because X, Y, and Z, then that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I, cause I think authenticity is crucial in leadership because if you're not authentic, people will see through that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so I'm interested in that, that idea of authenticity. And one of the things that comes up for me is around COVID and the impacts of COVID, what COVID has done for those who are leading, but also those who are doing frontline work, whatever that work may be. And so from your perspective, what do you see as those impacts? I think that the biggest challenge that COVID presented in the impact was not understanding and no one understood how long it was going to be. I remember the day we stopped operations St. Patrick's Day. So it's pretty hard to forget St. Patrick's Day. So I remember the exact day that we weren't open anymore. And I remember the college shut down and professional sports shut down. I'm like, oh, right. This is a this is a big thing. And I think that I was in the month, you know, two to four weeks. This would be under control. That's where I started. And about the four week point was when I was on the phone with the IT company saying, I need you to build me a virtual platform. Mm-hmm. And I could see the direction we were headed. So I think part of part of what the challenge of COVID brought was how you provide service and how do you stay true to your service? Okay. Because for from my perspective, peer support is a face-to-face interaction. It, like at its at its roots, at its, you know, the very first inception of the idea of peer support was a relational approach by which you are seeing each other and talking to each other. And we had to, I had to come to terms with what that might look like in a different way. And mm-hmm. that's why virtual was so important to me. And I think that was a challenge. I think for people who perhaps were in a different, from a different, and I don't, my idea wasn't about like, I'm the type of person that has to have a meeting in person all the time. I like that's just the way we've done it, always done it. I think that for some people who really struggled was an unwillingness to change mm-hmm. and who wanted things to be a certain way because that's the way they've always done it. Right. And I remember that lesson when I walked in to a room and someone told me, we've always done it this way. And I said, not anymore. Um, when you get stuck in, in that idea that we don't have to change because we've always done it a certain way, you might as well not be doing it at all. So I think that for me, I think the biggest challenge was a, when COVID happened originally, I remember coming to work the day after we closed and people were told to stay home. I was, were essential. So I came to work and it was like an apocalypse. And then it literally the 401, which is the you know, the biggest highway in Ontario was bare. Like I might've saw two or three cars on it and it was scary. And then as it became normalized, 
the expectation shifted. And one of the most, that probably the most challenging thing after the initial shock was people had ex- people sometimes have expectations of you that they don't have of, of themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a challenge. Like, are you seeing people? Are you meeting people? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And oftentimes it's like, like, what are you, like, are, are you, you know what I mean? Like, are you, are you seeing people? And sometimes you have to be realistic with everyone in who's involved in the, the decisions and the processes and in the service. And it's okay that you're not doing things the way you were before, because there's limitation and accepting limitations can be really hard for people. It can be hard for people in leadership. It can mm-hmm. be hard for people who are service recipients. It can be hard for staff. And I think that the biggest lessons learned from COVID from, from where I sit was that you're not, you, you may think that you're prepared for everything and you need to prepare, you need to think differently. Like you need to have different plans. Like the plans need to be fluid. And that was one of the things that I'm proud of is that we were constantly monitoring the situation with the Ministry of Health. We were constantly working with the health, like with the health authorities to see where we were at and plan for that. Because if you were just taking the wait and see approach, I don't think that was a good strategy. And that's not the approach we took. Mm-hmm. So given the amount of change and your comment about people sometimes have a lot of um, challenges with limitations, and, and let's face it, change is hard. I'm wondering, how did you support your staff through that process? Well, we paid them, which is, you know, we like we, yeah, we took. We took care of them financially, which yep. is really important because, I mean, you look at what happened with COVID and you have people who aren't going back to work yeah, or who you lost because of COVID in terms of they don't work for you anymore. And we made a commitment to our staff to pay them what to be, when they were off. And that wasn't, it wasn't even a consideration not to do that. Mm-hmm. Having, having said that, you know, the length of time wasn't anticipated, but we made that commitment. And because we we understand how difficult it is, like with people with lived experience or to be secure, like to have a sense of security. Yeah. The biggest the biggest issue or barrier really was sense of purpose for people when we had to close services down for a bit. Um, mental health for some addictions barriers for some a lot of what we do gives employees a sense of purpose that they matter that their experiences matter and it i could see how it could be difficult for people with depression for example to not have that extra motivation or need to get up and how routines get shifted so i mean keeping our staff informed every step of the way was important and I would send memos out and in, and be in contact with them regularly. I think that's important. You know, just we're not hiding anything. We have here's what we know this week or this month, right? Mm-hmm. We know this. Here's where we're at. Here's what we're thinking next. And and that was helpful probably. But you cannot take the human element out of things you do. Like mm-hmm. you cannot remove that human element. It's so key. I really admire what you're saying about the human element. And it's clear that that is something that 
is just first and foremost in your mind when you think about the work you do. And as you talked about the effect of COVID on some of your staff who do have that lived experience, who do have addictions or mental health barriers, I imagine the loss of the work that they were doing was quite profound for some of them. Yeah, I think, I mean, one, one of the, the lessons I hope everyone learns from COVID, and I don't mean this in a told you so type way, but I, we know that um, mental health barriers rose during COVID. We know that addiction barriers rose during COVID. Mm-hmm. I really hope, because, you know, people will begin recovery and, and, and those, those things will change for some, some of those people. But I hope they remember what it was like mm-hmm. going forward. And I hope they show the respect that people deserve who are living with mental health and addictions barriers <clears throat> for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things like that I hope happens from COVID at the end. Like We're nearing the finish line, hopefully, but you don't really know for sure. But that, that is remembered. Because I heard it a lot, in the, and I don't try try and stay away from media as much as possible. Yep. But I heard it a lot, right? As a reason, you know, we need like people who would who didn't have barriers to mental health before were now having barriers to mental health, isolation, depression, uh, alcohol consumption went through the roof in Ontario for sure. They did the liquor store liquor control board of Ontario did very well in the first three months of during COVID. Um, but I, I really, you know, hope that people take that experience and are able to then look at people as human, right? Who live with those barriers on an ongoing basis. I think that that is my hope from what comes out of COVID more than anything else. Mm. I hear in that uh, an element of understanding that, you know, the hope is that people have understanding. Yeah. I, I think that because people were saying like, this is, this is how it's in, this is how COVID is impacting us. Yeah. Like that was the messaging. COVID is impacting our children and us and, and, and us as, as people and in communities and all those things. And I get it. Like I can understand that as a person because I, I've lived, some of those experiences myself on a regular basis mm-hmm. and 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 I heard that, and I'm like, I don't want people to have mental health or addictions barriers. That's not what I want. What I want is understanding around the fact that people do have them, yeah, and because episodic you know barriers around addictions, mental health is is one thing, but chronic the chronic element of addictions and mental health barriers is another thing. And I think that hopefully people, hopefully most people will take that into consideration the next time they see someone and they don't say, what's wrong with that person? But what what happened to that person? Because what I'm hearing is what happened to you during COVID, right? Not what's wrong with you because of COVID. Yeah. What happened to you because of COVID? And that's a pretty simple language shift. And I think that's really important. Wow. Yeah. Powerfully said. And so, Todd, I'm curious, if you were to offer one final piece of advice or words of wisdom to the the leaders out there in whatever role or capacity that they're in, um, 
what would it be? One piece of leadership advice. <laughs> I think there's there's a couple ways to answer that. I think that you can be a leader and it doesn't reflect necessarily your title or the job that you do, that you can be a leader without having to sit in a certain chair or occupy a certain position and you can still be a leader. Because I think that sometimes people end up in chairs or positions and they're not necessarily leaders. And I would encourage those who have the leadership capabilities to understand that you can still be a leader without being in charge. I agree 100%. And thank you for sharing that. So in closing, thank you so much for your time and your experiences and everything you've offered today. Um, I learned a lot. And I think um, I'd love to have you back in the future and continue on this conversation. Can I just say one more thing before we, we close? Yeah. yeah. About leadership and being a leader? Please do. You're a human first. You're a leader second. Uh, I love it. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Leah. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership and Healthcare. Also, if you liked what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our host, Leah Woodchick, Check out talltreesleadership.com.